a better word because it's right. <clears throat> uh, have you ever tried to comprehend omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience, right? Those are the three omnis. Uh, anytime we even remotely try, it's, it's way beyond us. Um, sure enough, you know, every day there's tragedy in our world. And um, today is no different. So it's a mass shooting that happened today. And, uh, you know, uh, things everywhere. There's just evil people everywhere doing evil stuff. Not all of it makes it on the news. Actually, a small portion does. Um, in light of omniscience, right, and God's, is God in control of things or what? You know, when we see a murder or a evil thing that happens, a tragedy happens to an innocent person, usually the first thing we think of is not that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Uh, usually, for us as believers, I think that comes later. Uh, but initially, we just kind of shake our heads at things and are, you know, puzzled. At, and maybe other emotions come out. Um, what we'll see today in the Gospel of Matthew is that God has all history in his hands. Uh, a phrase I came up with was his decreeing hands. Like, God has decreed all things. He's sovereign over all things. And even so, horrible things happen. Uh, we can't truly make sense of it all. What we have to do is trust. That, And we see in this Gospel that um, that all of history is given and given by God and um, absolutely in control by God. Not that he causes the bad stuff. He doesn't. But it's happening the way that he wills it. And that is a hard thing for us to comprehend. But that makes sense because we can't comprehend truly who he is. Comprehend omniscience and you can comprehend all of God. That's not going to be impossible for us. And so we have to trust. Uh, so we're going to start in Matthew chapter. One, and we've got our last bit here of our introduction, and on Sunday we'll hit one one. So buckle up. <laughs> Starts with a genealogy, everybody's favorite. I'm going to make it exciting. Believe me, I am. You're going to be like, wow, I never knew genealogy was that awesome. Believe it's going to be. So let's open up in prayer. Let's be uh, grateful. Uh, Always, when we hear God's word, we should put our hearts in gratitude mode, being thankful for all that he has done and re now revealing to us what he has done, the terrific plan that God has for us and for the whole world. Uh, with humility, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for our Lord and that he is revealed here in this gospel, um, and of course in all the scripture he is. But as we look at this gospel, we see our Lord as Messiah, Savior, King, Lord, Son of God, Son of David. We are so grateful that you, Father, would save us through him, that you would devise a plan of salvation for us that would be final and eternal and, of course, it's the way it should be. We are not working for that salvation that you have provided it by grace through your love. 
And so we thank you for that love. May we be awed by that love, that it may overwhelm us so that we may love in return, love you, love others. And to take the things that we'll learn tonight and also in this gospel and use that, Father, to have our hearts changed, continually changed into what would please you, what would glorify you, and what would also fulfill what you have made us to be. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. It's one of the indicators that we find that makes us fairly confident that Matthew is writing to Jews, and that is his, his audience. Um, and so he's quoting the Old Testament a bunch. And, uh, and so we're going to look a bit at that today uh, in terms of you know, it's not just prediction. So, when often we think of Old Testament, writ, you know, is quoted, it is often uh, a prediction that a prophet has made, and here the prediction has come true. And there's a few of those, uh, definitely, but more so in Matthew, we have an Old Testament event, uh, something that happens in the Old Testament that's an event in time. A historical event, and that is revealed as fulfilled by Matthew in Christ. Uh, and it's, that turns out to be something that is an event either in him uh, or in circumstances around him. So this, so this is where you can see, like, if there is an event in history that actually depicts something that is fulfilled. So the event is like a foreshadowing of something to come, and that foreshadowing is fulfilled in the events of Christ, then God has to make all of history. Like it can't be a coincidence. And this happens over and over and over. And so when we learn this gospel, we find out that that's how we find it out. It's revealed to us. Um, and we wouldn't know it otherwise. For us to say, well, I think this thing that happened to me today is a fulfillment of some Old Testament thing. Hey, you're on your own with that, right? It's not inspired. Uh, people do that, unfortunately, and it's completely wrong. The only way that we can know that these things are actual fulfillments of prophecy is that we're reading it from God's Word. And Matthew has more of these than anybody. No less than 13 times Matthew says that Jesus performs some act that quote, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet or the prophets. These are both predictions that come true, like I said. Take, for instance, his birth in Bethlehem. That's predicted by Micah, and that's mentioned by Matthew in chapter 1. So he's born in Bethlehem. That's an event that comes true. Um, there's a prediction of John the Baptist, his whole ministry. That's in Malachi, and that comes true. But more often, we see an Old Testament historical event that serves a pattern. And that pattern is anticipated and fulfilled. And all of this reveals the outworking, we would say the providential outworking of God's plan. Now, if God is controlling some parts of history, we can say for sure. And we have to conclude he's concluding that he's controlling all of history. And though we can't really understand why all things happen, because some things are pretty bad. But in fact, we're going to see something here tonight that was terrible. And yet God 
used it. Um, so I promised you a final structure, uh, which I'm kind of, <laughs> I don't know why I, I, you know, I initially said I'm just going to give all structures. But this structure is the least helpful, but it's the simplest. So we looked in Sunday, we looked at a chiasm. Right? Matthew was organized into a chiasm as its structure. Or the middle part of the chiasm is chapter 13. Then uh, the last two classes, we looked at the five discourses that are in Matthew. These are clear. It says after each of these discourses, and again, Matthew 13 is in the middle. He's the middle one. Uh, in each of these discourses, it ends by Jesus was finished saying these things. After Jesus was finished saying these things. Each of them finish with that, and there are five of them. All right, so that's a structure, five discourses. They're very long, these discourses. So that's actually a little less complicated than the chiasm, and I think a little easier to grab onto in terms of trying to remember what, you know, the structure of Matthew as you're going through it. And I'll, we'll be reminding ourselves of these as we go on. The third one is the simplest, and this is marked by a phrase that's used twice in Matthew, and the phrase is, from then on, Jesus began. So this phrase happens in chapter 417, and that's at a break. You know, that, that's a natural break. When, when the author says, from then on, Jesus began, and then fills in what he began. And so that's a natural break. And then this happens again, word for word, in 1621, and that's a long way off from chapter 4. So if we use those two instances of from then on Jesus began, uh, then we get this very simple structure. We have the preparation of Jesus the Messiah in 1-1 through 4-16. And that, by the way, that matches exactly with the chiasm and also the, the preamble to the first discourse. So that's, that's really the opening. Through the first four chapters of Matthew is the proof that Jesus is the king. You have his genealogy and his birth and all of this is uh, the stuff that is uh, showing Israel that he is the qualified Messiah king. So the preparation of Jesus the Messiah, in the middle, it would be a huge chunk of text, is the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah in 417 through 1620. And then the passion, which is at the end, from 1621 to the end. And so in, at both places where there's a break here, it says from then on. Now, it's such a simple structure that it doesn't actually help us out very much, I don't think. Plus, all the other Gospels kind of have the same thing going on, right? So uh, a simple structure like this does not actually point out the uniqueness of Matthew. And we want to make sure that we know that. Uh, Matthew has a uniqueness, as do the other three Gospels. They're written for a purpose, and the purpose of each one is not the same as the others. And so for us to understand the Gospel, we want to know that. So this doesn't help that much, but there it is. So let's close in prayer. Have a good weekend. That'd be, you know, right? Get me home early, get you home early, and we're good. But no. Um, now, as I, as I said at the front, one of the characteristics of Matthew is his frequent quotation of the Old Testament. He does so much more than the other Gospels. It's one of the indicators that he, we know he's writing to the Jews. Uh, 
And of course, you know, in one class, we don't have the time to actually go through them all. There's 129 references to the Old Testament. And four of, uh, sorry, 53 of them are direct citations. So when it's either uh, as was stated by the prophets and then he gives it, or Jesus says it, or somebody says it, 53 times there's a direct quotation from the Old Testament. 76 times are allusions, not direct quotes, but referencing the Old Testament. So for a grand total of 129 Old Testament references in 26 chapters. Sorry, 28 chapters. No less than 13 times, Matthew says that Jesus performed some act that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophet. As I said, many of them are predictions, but more of them are historical events in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in the life of Christ. So let's look at, we'll start with the virgin birth, because this one is somewhat unique in that, yes, it's a prophecy to be fulfilled, but it's more than that. This is more than a prediction that a virgin is going to have a child. So look at Matthew 1.22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And now he's going to quote Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So Matthew nicely translates it for us, uh, and you know there's possible reasons why he does that. We'll touch on that when we get there. But this is more than a prediction. And the reason why we know that is because when it is offered, when this prediction is offered, it's not offered as a prediction, but as a sign. It's offered to Ahaz, who is an evil, rotten king, and he's in the line of Christ. If you just look back a few lines in the genealogy, you'll see Ahaz hanging in there. But there's a lot of bad characters in that genealogy. You know, it's so amazing when we go through that genealogy, you'll see that because especially in Israel, your pedigree was really significant. And here Matthew is saying, look, here's the pedigree of your Messiah. And as you go through that list, you're like, there's a bunch of rotten people in there. Uh, and, and, and a few a very spelled out adulterers that he, he spells out. Um, anyway, so, and Gentiles that are in there too, as any Jew would say, uh, that shouldn't be there. But anyway, this is more than a prediction, but it was offered as a sign to Ahaz. Now, as a sign, we mean that, say, so here's a good question. How many people knew Mary was pregnant before she got married? And it's hard to tell, but after Mary gets a visit by the angel, she runs off to her relative. We don't know how close a relative Elizabeth is, but she runs off to Elizabeth's house and stays there for three months in Luke's gospel and then returns home. So, you know, is she pregnant during that time? We don't know. But what we do know is that, they, that Joseph, who is going to send her away secretly, is visited by the same angel that visited Mary in, the, in a dream, and to Joseph says, don't dismiss her, marry her. And so, if you look at the next line in verse 24, Joseph woke up from his sleep. It's not the next line. Oh, it is. Joseph woke up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
and took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So there's a wedding with a pregnant woman here. Correct. So was she trying to hide it? You know, the pregnant bride, it's always like a butt of a joke. But yet here we would say, well, if it is a sign, and this is quite a sign, then why would it be kept secret? And I'm sure it wouldn't be. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be coming back to Matthew a few times, so um, you know, put a marker there if you like, although Matthew's pretty easy to find. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. And we just see this real quick, but we want to see this because, again, the fulfillment here is not so much a this is going to happen, <coughs> although it is that. It's a this is a sign to you, Israel. It doesn't happen every day, right? This is a sign to you, Israel. And if it's a sign to Israel, as it was a sign to Ahaz, then it's going to be quite public. So, uh, to set this up, Ahaz is the king of Judea, the southern kingdom. He's the king of Judah. Uh, Syria and Israel, northern kingdom, have gotten together and they're going to invade the southern kingdom. They're going to invade Judah. Yes, Israel was evil at the time, as Isaiah prophesied of them, and they're going to be dealt with by God. But... They're going to invade. Now, that Syria and Israel together are going to invade the lower kingdom. And Ahaz, the king of that kingdom, he has no hope here. There's no way he can stop their advance into his nation. So, Isaiah the prophet is sent by God to Ahaz. And he tells Ahaz that God says they are not going to invade you. you know, sleep well. Don't be anxious. I'm not going to allow them to invade you. And he even tells Ahaz that I'm going to carry them off to captivity. So don't even worry about it. Everything's cool. So then, look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz again, right, after this promise that he's not going to allow him to be defeated. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God, and make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, this is a wonderful phrase that says, ask anything. All the way down to the grave and all the way up to heaven, anything and everything, ask me for a sign. And notice, Ahaz is an evil, idol-worshipping jerk. He's an evil man. And Ahaz says this, in this feigning of humility, but he's far from humble, he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And that's just a flat out, I won't test the Lord. He's an idol worshiper. He tests the Lord every day. He's a terrible king, like many of them were. I won't ask or test the Lord. It's because he has no faith in the Lord. He doesn't want a sign from the Lord. But notice what God does anyway. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, which Ahaz is king of. He's a descendant of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? In other words, you are evil towards men and now you're going to be evil towards God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for one, but I'm going to give it anyway. And here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. 
This is 800 years before the birth of Christ. And the angel comes to Mary and says this. The angel says to Joseph, they will call him Emmanuel. It's a sign. It's more than a fulfillment of prophecy, though it is, that a virgin will be with child, but it's a sign to Israel. Sure enough, we see in Israel that they're going to ask Christ for signs over and over and over again. Give us a sign. He gives them signs, and then they ask for a sign from heaven. And he and he he gives he has done so many miracles and then and it's right in the middle of Matthew's gospel right you know the very middle is the offer of the kingdom is off the table to this generation but on either side of that there are two times that Christ says you're going to receive one sign from me and that's the sign of Jonah in other words the offer off the table. But you're not doomed, not yet, because you're going to see me resurrected. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. He says, I'm going to give you that sign. So even though the kingdom has been removed from this generation, that generation, you're still, you can still become a part of the kingdom program, which is now going to run into the church, if you believe in me after the sign of Jonah. The resurrection. See, God doesn't even, he doesn't quit on them, just like he's never quit on you or on me. So the virgin birth is a sign. So now, go back to Matthew chapter 2 now. Uh, most of Matthew, as I said, are many Old Testament quotations deal with historical events. And the next one we're going to see, which is in Matthew 2, is the Exodus generation or the exodus out of Egypt. The historical event is a foreshadowing of a pattern that a New Testament event is going to fulfill. And so in Matthew, we see in the person of Christ, in the life of Christ, the fulfillment of historical things in the past. And that means that God has his hand on all of history. And therefore, the things that are happening now, he has his hand on. And if all things are summed up in Christ, which this proves to us, these, these signs prove to us, it's far more than a prediction and a fulfillment. It's a historical event that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person, in one man. Then all things are summed up in him. Everything that happens in my life, no matter what it may be, can be to his glory and summed up unto him. Or e but even if I turn my back on the Lord and try and run from him, even that is going to be summed up in Christ somehow. Everything is summed up in him. And if we can get that through our thick heads, then we'll see him in all our lives, in everything we do. And we will be free and wise and so the next one is uh, an Old Testament, again, historical event being fulfilled in the life of Christ in Matthew 2.15. Out of Egypt I called my son. But this is a quote of Hosea 11.1. And this passage is clearly dealing with Israel being called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. But Matthew sees this as a personification 
where Israel now, my son Israel, is my son Jesus Christ. And there's many other passages where we see this, where Jesus is, you know, you could almost put an equal sign between Jesus and Israel. Actually, he's called Israel in several prophecies. And so, you know, you see this, and this would not be everybody in Israel, obviously the believers, but he is the true Israel. Just like the church, you are him, in him, means you're him. Right? Imagine the privilege this is to you and to me. So Matthew 2.15 <coughs> cites Hosea 11.1, 1, which speaks of the historical exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Matthew capitalizes on this metaphor of Israel as God's son to point to God's unique son. And so a recapitulation. Wow, I said that word properly, didn't I? I usually stutter on those multiple syllabic words. Uh, anyway, uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is, Hosea is a prophet of doom upon a northern kingdom that's going to be destroyed. There's a passage, we were talking about this earlier, I was talking about it with Keith, there's a passage in Hosea where God says, I'm going to bust your head open, literally. I'm going to break your head open. Uh, yeah, right? There's your loving God. <laughs> and, you know, everybody who wants to ignore God's holiness and just say, well, God is love. Passages like that, they just kind of ignore. But anyway, <clears throat> so look at Matthew 2.14. And Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now notice the word fulfilled. It's the Greek word pleroo. It's a verb. And it means to fill up. It means to fill to completion. So this, you know, this is about, this prophecy from Hosea is about the exodus, the freedom of Israel from Egypt, and yet here it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that exodus, which is God's doing, is fulfilled in Jesus being taken by his father, his stepfather, to Egypt to escape Herod. Because Herod makes the order to kill all, all the male children two years and under in Bethlehem. And they escape. He's saved. But not everybody is saved, are they? And that's the next historical event. <clears throat> so Jesus is spared. And in the next historical event, which is right after this, is the event of the violent Babylonian exile, which is fulfilled in the murder of the children of Bethlehem. Uh, and Matthew is going to quote here Jeremiah 31, 31.15, and that quote is has nothing to do with Bethlehem. It has nothing to do with these children in Bethlehem, not when it's written by the prophet Jeremiah, it's not. But what it is about with Jeremiah is uh, and Rachel, and Rachel represents the mother of all Israel, is weeping for her children because they're being carried away to Babylon. 
And as this is the exile, 586 BC is the first wave, uh, and or is that the last wave? I get confused there. But anyway, uh, the it's a violent thing. They're not when the Babylonians take the Israelites to Babylon. You know, it's not a, a posh, easy ride. It's not like, all right, guys, come on, get on the bus. We're going to serve lunch. Don't worry about a thing. You know, here we go. We'll stop. We'll have bathroom breaks. Don't you worry. It's vicious. It's vicious. Many die. Babylonians don't care. They're vicious people. So look at verse 16, 216. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Which, by the way, shows us that you know all the depictions that the Magi show up the night he was born is not actually true. They were there afterwards, but anyway... Uh, when <clears throat> then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. There's our word again. It's the same word, play roo It was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Imagine you're a mother and you just are witnessing your children being murdered in front of you. And that's what happened. It happened at the exile. It happened in Bethlehem. So, and I found a couple of um, paintings that have been done years past on this murder of the children in Bethlehem. And some of them were, I, I mean, really well done Renaissance paintings that I didn't actually want to show. <laughs> they were they They were hard to look at. But... This is as hard. I mean, imagine, and I can't remember the the name of the man who did this, but this painting, this woman who's hiding her child, and look, she has her her hand over his mouth so he doesn't cry out. Imagine. It's absolutely awful. Imagine if you were carried away in the the Exodus. And by the way, there were innocent people who were taken, not the Exodus, sorry, the captivity. There were innocent people like Daniel, and there's his three buddies there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were all taken. They were not guilty like the rest, but with the rest, they were taken. They were not spared. There were many like that. And people died by the thousands. Here, we don't know how many children there were in Bethlehem. It's impossible to know. But it's a citation from Jeremiah 31, 15, in which Matthew says this is fulfilled. But in the exile of Israel 600 years before this. So what does this tell? Well, it tells us a lot of things, but it's really quite amazing. You know what it does for you? It kind of shrinks the Bible a little. I was thinking about this the other day. I think when you start off learning the Bible, the Bible's small. You think to yourself, oh, yeah, this isn't that much, right? Because, you know, you don't know anything about it. And then as you delve into it and you learn it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It gets overwhelming. It's like so much of it. But as you continue to learn, you're going to find out how much in this scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all overlap and intertwine in ways that are going to shrink it down again for you. 
you're going to start to see connections, and that helps you understand it. Now, something like this happened. Now, it made me think, is this necessary <laughs> to the plan of salvation? Is it necessary for the plan of redemption that, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so or less, uh, say 50 children are murdered in Bethlehem? Right? Couldn't we all be saved and the plan of salvation go on without this? I would say, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it should. I mean, what is the significance of a few dozen children in the history of the world that's filled with billions and billions of people? Well, it doesn't seem to, you know, make a dent, actually. But, and we, because of it, we might scratch our heads. And scratch our heads. You know, like, why, does, why God? Why don't you protect the children? Couldn't God have worked it out another way? And actually, Herod becomes sort of a contrast to Christ because Herod claims to be king of the Jews. Actually, Caesar claims to be God. And so actually we find in Herod and in Caesar, it's Tiberius at the time, is that they're kind of like counterparts to Christ, whereas Caesar sits on his throne in Rome, Jesus is in a manger in Bethlehem in a nowhere and grows up in a nowhere place in Nazareth. And yet, here we have these, you know, this indiscriminate murder of toddlers and infants. And then, we're given hope. First off, in Jeremiah. Oh, here we go. First, the sorrow of both. In Jeremiah and in Matthew, there's this glimmer of hope. In Jeremiah, here's the hope. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Right after this broken-hearted Rachel, the mother of Israel, sees her children being murdered and taken away, God says, restrain your voice from weeping. They're coming back. There's hope. Now, look at Matthew 2.19. Here's the hope in Matthew. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod's dead, thank God. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Uh, so, you know, it, it, he gets to go back. You see the hope there. Jesus is spared but then we stop and say, you know, what about the kids in Bethlehem? Was that necessary? We're broken hearted. And this actually brings up a really important aspect to life here on earth. We are broken hearted on how people die. We are. And we should be. But everybody dies. Nobody escapes it. None of us escape it. If an old man dies in his bed of natural causes, like recently we had Roger, we celebrated for him. I said, what a good long life he had. And he did. We bless the Lord for a good long life of a good man. But if a child dies, we don't do that. We actually question God's justice. Why so young? Why me? 
we are inexorably tied to life on earth. And I'm not saying that we should not be affected by the loss of a child. We absolutely should. It should crush us. But my point is that if they're in heaven, we mourn. They don't. The, the child who dies in heaven and the old man who dies who's in heaven, neither of them are brokenhearted about the way of their death or the time of their death. They're not. Because actually, heaven is eternal. The funerals that we have, they're for us. And I heard, I, I, uh, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine said this in, in his, his book, City of God. He said, uh, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, do no more to you. And he says, fear God who can kill the body and cast you into hell. And the point that Augustine made is that we here on earth, after you're dead, there's nothing more we can do. You know, like some people think they're going to hurt somebody by desecrating their bodies or not burying them or, you know, people will say, oh, you shouldn't cremate, you know, that's going to ruin them or whatever. Jesus said, don't fear what people can do to you after you're dead because after you're dead, it doesn't matter. And it really drives home the point that if a child dies, an old man dies, whatever, life on earth is a drop in the bucket in the ocean of our real lives, which is eternal life with Christ in heaven. And it's very good to remember that. God is not unjust by allowing this wicked, wretched Herod to actually kill babies. God is not unjust in his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. He has it all under control. I don't have all the answers for it, but our weeping over tragic things are for us on earth. We should do it. But it's for them who have left us and gone to heaven. They could care less anymore. All right. So we had their three prophecies in a row, all right there in Matthew 2, that are all historical fulfillments. All right. They weren't predictions that such and such is going to happen like virgin birth. And then it happened. This is a historical thing. The exodus of Israel out of Egypt is fulfilled in Christ escaping the murder in Bethlehem to get to Egypt. The um, murder of the children in Bethlehem is a fulfillment of the exile of Israel to Babylon. And there are many like these. There are are like a dozen more in in Matthew that show us that God has weaved together his whole history. And all of it is under, it's not not only under his control, but there's a grand plan for every part of it. And I would have to, you know, here God is omniscient, so he doesn't overlook any detail. So when World War, if, if God forbid World War Three does actually happen from this, um, fire that has engulfed the Middle East right now. You know, it, it's all of it is going to be under for, a, and it has a real purpose. That's my point. Not so you can say God is in control, but and that is helpful. What is more helpful 
is add to that, he has a purpose for it too. All to his glory. All right, one more thing to wrap this up. And this ties to prophecy as well, which Matthew does, as I said, quite a bit of. And this is the revelation of the Son from beginning to end. The revelation of Jesus as these titles. Uh, and to many of these, uh, to actually all of these titles, there's going to be Old Testament references. Um, uh, Matthew reveals Christ as Messiah. Actually, that's what Christ means. So I should have put reveals Jesus as Messiah. But Christos means Messiah. Son of David, son of Abraham, Emmanuel, which we just saw. The king. He's really got to, he really pushes that one. He's got to prove that to the Israelites that he's writing to. The Son of God, uh, Lord, Teacher, and Son of Man. And there are more. There are more additional titles, but these are the most frequently used. Now, in the passage I want to turn to uh, at the end is, we're going to see a passage where three of these are lumped together, you know, all in one event. But first we want to look again, look at Matthew 122 again. Now all this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, again Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So I'm going to keep that on the board because we're going to see this again at the end of the gospel. And incredibly, this becomes like a bookend, a bookends to the front and the back, this God is with us. And this God is a man, Jesus Christ. The apex of his hour. You know this phrase, right? He said, it's not, it's, my hour has not yet come. And so when they were going to kill him, he disappeared. You know, as I was, re- I was reading this passage where, what did he say? I can't remember the exact place, but, you know, they were in the temple and he made his teaching, you know, who gives, oh, it's when he says, before Abraham, I am. You know, who, who are you? Where do you get off saying these things? You know, that's when he told them, you do the things of your father, the devil. Man, they didn't like that very much. Like, well, who do you think you are? And that, by the way, that's when they say, they say to him, we're not sons of fornication, which a lot of people think means that they're referencing his virgin birth. Because everybody kind of knows that this guy was born out of wedlock. And they would have pre- they would have pushed that. You know, so and as we saw, it was a sign to Israel. Here's a sign, and they used it. The religious jerks used it as a as a jibe to put him down. Anyway, my hour is not yet come. His hour finally comes. That's the passion. It starts in chapter 26, um, and when he is asked at this culmination of his hour, he's finally asked. No more beaten around the bush, no more wondering or underhanded questions or trying to trap you in things. Finally, the high priest comes out and says, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? So go to Matthew 26, 
63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ. Now, Christos here is Messiah. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? So there we have two titles. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see. Now, here we have a quote from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, And this drives them. I mean, if they were already mad, this redlines them. They, high priest, what further need do we have of witnesses? He tears his robe and... The whole thing begins. They beat the heck out of him in the Sanhedrin. And, you know, therefore, we find here, because he's on trial here, right? He's on trial. This is that night after the Garden of Gethsemane. They have arrested him. Uh, They did it in secret at night. This is an illegal trial. But they did it in secret at night because of his popularity with the people. And so they do this trial, and they, they're looking for two witnesses to agree and so on. And, um, and this trial, what do they accuse him of? You know, they accuse him of blasphemy. But is that really why? That's what they say they're trying him for, but that's not what he's being tried for. He is being tried, but not for that. He's being tried for who he is. And by the way, in every heart in this world, he is tried for who he is. I mean in a trial. In every single heart in this world, every human being born into this world, Jesus Christ is under trial. He is being tried in the heart of everybody. And they're going to make a determination on not what he said or did he blaspheme. The Romans accused him of being of sedition and revolting. Uh, causing sedition and a a revolution, which that's not really what he was on trial for. As Pilate said to him, are you a king? He's He's on trial for who he is. And all of it, even as believers, every single day, how you think, how you act, what you do every day, you must make the decision who is the Lord. If in your heart you are looking at your Lord as king, Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, Emmanuel, your whole day is different. Then it is if when you start your day, you're king or you're the one in charge. Every day I don't bow the knee to him and to his will, that's a bad day. It's generally a wasted day unless you recover and get that right in your head. Every day we put him on trial because every day we have to determine who is he. Now, we do. We, we already know this in our heart and our faith. But when we go about our day, right from the start, who is he to you? Who are you to him? And if you get that right, well, then you can do everything. So if you, yeah, we got a minute. Turn back to Daniel 7. Hold your place here because we're going to come right back. Look at Daniel seven thirteen. Because this is what he quotes, what Matthew quotes, which Jesus quoted. 
Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now notice what his title here is in Daniel 7, the Son of Man. This title, this title, Son of Man, is used in the Old Testament about a hundred times. And almost every time it refers to a human being who's a sinner, who's weak. It's mostly in Ezekiel. God addresses Ezekiel, Son of Man. And Ezekiel, though a prophet, he's a man. He's a fallen man. In this case, Son of Man is used of the man. And this title, this is what he uses. It's his most popular title he ever used of himself. When he referred to himself by title, most often it was Son of Man. And the Jews knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about this. For a man in Israel to call himself a Son of Man, that's what he meant. So, he's presented to the Father in 13. Behold with the clouds of heaven. That's what we just read. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? He said, you have said it yourself, high priest. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yeah? And then, just now I've got them both up here because we need to remember them both as we go to the end of this now. God with us, chapter 1, that's his name, Emmanuel. And his other title in Daniel 7.14 is Son of Man, 7.13, Son of Man, and 7.14, his kingdom is, has no end, he is given dominion. All right, go back to, go to Matthew 28 at the end. Matthew 28.16. He told the disciples to meet him in Galilee, and here they've done it. And he said, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, in verse 16, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I don't know if that's part of the eleven. I doubt it. I think there's other people there, but whatever the case, some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, before his death, he quoted seven, Daniel 7.13. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. After his death, now here he is. This is him in a resurrection body. He's just about to ascend to heaven. And he quotes references, we should say. This is an illusion. He's not really, referen- he's not really quoting it, but he's referencing it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. That's Daniel 7.14. Before his death, 7.13. After his resurrection, 7.14. I have all dominion. That's another thing you and I would serve us well to remember. Who is going to overwhelm, overcome, overrule our Lord? Nobody. So then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
That line is often called the Great Commission, and it's only in Matthew. And notice, it's to all the nations. Matthew has a huge emphasis on Gentiles. And the Gentiles are in the church, and the Gentiles are going to be in the church, and the Jews are going to have to get used to that. Born-again Jews in the church age. And so, go to all the nations. Now, this is going to be a difficult task, right? Matthew chapter 10, he told them that I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. They're going to persecute you. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to persecute you for my namesake. Have fun. But you, I'm sending you. You've got to go. They say, I don't want to go. You've got to go. But it's scary, is it not? It is. It is for everybody. So he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am always with you to the even to the end of the age. What does Emmanuel mean, this title? God with us. At the end, God with us. It's the last thing that Matthew writes. As he closes his monumental gospel, his last line is, I am with you always. Go. You're not going alone. I'm going with you. You're going to need faith for this, but I'm going with you. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. Certainly, it's a re- Emmanuel is a reference to the fact that God became a man and dwelt among us. Absolutely. But here, it's no mistake that we have God with us at the front of the gospel and here at the end. And all the way through, these quotations from the Old Testament that show us that all of history is wrapped up in him. Again, this is the omniscience of our Lord, the omnipotence of our Lord, the omnipresence of our Lord that none of us could possibly grasp. But yet, he is the one who has his hands in everything. And every part of it has a purpose. Even when we don't understand the purpose, we put our faith in him and say, you have a purpose. So will the Lord tell us, Matthew 6, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. Your Father knows what you need. Seek first my kingdom and all things will be added to you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you that you and you alone, Father, control history. And that though we don't understand all that you do and are doing, we could put our faith in you to know that you have all things under control. And that also, Father, that you have a purpose in everything that you do. Even in our lives, we're such a small part of everything you do. But for us, every hair of our head is numbered. You know we're more valuable than sparrows and stuff that you take care of. And so you will take care of us. You have a grand purpose for each of our lives. May we find it, Father, through submission to you, just like our Lord did. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.